Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance. Uh, I teach for Rocky Mountain University Online, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and founder of FlexDiet.com. Right on. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of uh, news and mail, as we are wont to do. Uh, after the break, we're going to check in with uh, Dr. Danielle Cordero again, uh, and she's going to give some more tips about working in fitness media. Uh, different forms. The last time she spoke mostly about the written word, uh, but there's lots of other things like podcasting, for example. And we've done episodes on some of the basics about podcasting if you're interested. But um, anyway, first the mail and news. Um, Strength and muscle sport news. Let's start with um, actually a news tidbit here I got from the Institute of Food Technologists. I think it could have farther reaching applications than maybe a lot of people realize. If you're not really up with or part of some of these groups, you don't really know what's going to happen in the next couple of years. This is about dietary supplements. Uh, Nestle buys dietary supplements maker for $2.3 billion. Uh, now, <laughs> Mike and I know, and we've seen this firsthand, like a lot of people think, oh, Nestle, that's like chocolate milk or, you know, oh, Pepsi, that's sugary, you know, cola. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, but so much more. These are huge multinationals throwing around billions of dollars, and br the brands that they own would surprise you, right? Most brands are owned by larger companies, and really there's about half a dozen large companies that are making the decisions that affect how we all eat, which is scary, a little scary. Um, anyway, it says, Nestle has agreed to acquire privately held Atrium Innovations, a manufacturer of dietary supplements from a group of investors um, for $2.3 billion in cash. Wow. Cash. Uh, right. It makes it sound dramatic. Yeah. Uh, Atrium's largest brand, Garden of Life, is the number one brand in the natural supplement industry in the United States. That surprises me, but okay. Oh, yeah. Um, this affects, let's see, other specialty brands such as Wobenzyme, and we've seen them their booths before. Mm -hmm. um, Douglas Laboratories, Genestra Brands, Orthica, AOV, Minami, Clean Athlete, Clean with a K, Pharmax, and Trophic. It says, let's see, this supports their pursuit of growing opportunities in the consumer healthcare market, inclu including high growth sectors such as food and beverage categories. Uh, this is basically going to happen in... First quarter of 2018, so it's coming up next year. It says, according to Greg Behar, or Behar, Nestle's health science CEO, quote, these brands are a natural complement to our consumer care portfolio, which offers solutions for healthy aging, healthy growing, gut health, and obesity. 
So, of course, gut health being a big topic we talk about all the time. Um, this purchase will extend our product range uh, into probiotics, plant-based proteins, meal replacements, and extensive multivitamin lines. So, and again, you and I were just talking about plant-based proteins a, a month or two ago, I think, yeah. how, how growing. Uh, Justin Strait was sort of confirming that with us, right, when we were, uh, mm-hmm. I think when we were in Las Vegas. Um, in other news, Nestle just started construction on a new factory in Cuba to further meet growing consumer demand. So look for Nestle to be one of those companies you don't always see, you know, like in a GNC, for example, but owning a lot of the brands that you might buy. So just thought that was a little interesting, a little bit of sort of corporate industry news. Yeah, I wonder how many I'd have to sit down and we could probably between the two of us figure this out. But um, how many smaller companies there really are? I mean, because Post um, owns a fair amount of them, right? But Diamondize and you know Abbott Labs owns EAS and a bunch of other ones. And right. it seems like the what you would cons- not really consider uh, supplement uh, companies per se, right? So health and more food manufacturers, I think, are buying up a lot of the more higher producing supplement lines. Right. I mean, just before I took my current position here uh, as a professor, uh, I was doing some consulting for a large Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical company. And because of sort of non-disclosure stuff, I'm not going to go on about it, but they wanted to start a nutrient arm. And these guys make some very popular pharmaceuticals that I guarantee our listeners (laughs) use. Uh, but they wanted that sort of nutrition line. So, yeah, a lot of these larger companies are – and like you said, Abbott, they've done clinical nutrition for a long time, right? So yeah. like what a dietitian would call a supplement is not what we would call a supplement necessarily. They're talking about things like Ensure and Sustacal and things in their formulary, that little cans of stuff that they're giving to sick patients you know, in the hospital. Um, yeah, so interesting stuff. But sometimes that can drive innovation because they can fund projects and – you know, and um, let's face it, dietary supplements, they get a lot of critique and often rightly so. So sometimes it's it's good to have some of the uh, the big boys stepping in and and buying them. I don't know. You know, there's pros and cons, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting because, I mean, I mean, post bought Dimatize for like almost what, 400 million like four years ago. And mm. I know at one point um, I got it sent to me, but I didn't apply a couple of years ago for um, Gatorade, right? So Gatorade has had the Sports Science Institute for a while. Um, And then I think they're owned by, is it Pepsi? Is that right? I thought it was Quaker. Um, But then Quaker might be owned by Pepsi. I can't remember. Yeah, (laughs) but I think there was an ad that they're looking for a top PhD person to work at Pepsi to, you know, help with their product development in the nutritional area. And this was like four or five years ago, kind of right around right before I graduated. Right. So it's... uh, been going on for a while yeah i actually interviewed for that job <laughs> oh you're the one who interviewed for it too yeah yeah it, it was people that interviewed too yeah it, it was admittedly over my head you know but um i thought fortune favors the bold baby and i can learn yeah, from it you, you know? know but anyway um okay we have um another email here from seb he writes us every once in a while he says hey guys just saw this on brad schoenfeld's twitter uh creatine having potentially greater effect on the upper body. 
I'm not into science and not sure how correctly to read or understand these. He says, I'm just a chartered accountant, lol. But I find it interesting and it will surely interest you. Keep up the good work. It always amazes me that even after so many episodes, your podcast keeps getting better. Uh, in my books, hands down the best podcast around. Thanks for your work. I truly appreciate it. That's really nice, Seb. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. And he did send us an abstract um, from Dr. Schoenfeld. Uh, I have not read this abstract. Mike and I were just discussing it before we hit the record button this morning. Um, I will say a few things just to set the stage. Often, in dietetics at least, in nutrition, in a clinical setting, we do look at the upper body for changes more readily than sometimes the lower body. Like there's a... There's a body composition technique called the um, mid-arm muscle area, MAMA, or mid-arm muscle circumference, M-A-M-C. And we, we d directly look at your upper arm, but we kind of correct it for the amount of fat that's on there. So with the idea there that your biceps and triceps combined, they're going to change in mass with nutritional adequacy uh, more readily than sort of these what are sometimes called anti-gravity muscles, like your glutes and your quads, because they're always bearing your weight, at least if you're ambulatory. So we often do look at the upper body. And I can tell you another curious tidbit is some of the data that we presented in Spain years ago, um, we was actually suggesting that caffeine affects the upper body more than the lower body. We were looking at like 10% increases in power output and things of that nature uh, in the bench press, but only like 4% differences sometimes not even statistically significant with the squat so that that just left us speculating like why is this happening you know is the bench press arguably a simpler movement because you don't have postural control and all that like with the lower body um is there something going on with adrenaline receptors and at least with the caffeine case i, I don't know but this is sort of consistent with some of what i've seen before both clinically and with other types of compounds right affecting the upper body uh i don't know mike what are your thoughts about this yeah unfortunately i just got it this morning so i haven't had a, a chance to read it but i always love reading all of brad's research it's always super interesting um yeah basically the same reasons you mentioned i mean i went back and just looked super briefly this morning and as you know and the listeners probably realize like a lot of testing can be done on like arm flexor testing right just because of the equipment you have in the lab it's sometimes easier to measure you can put you on there you could do some more eccentric type stuff um, so there's some earlier stuff from you know around the 2000s point looking at the effects of uh, creatine on uh, arm strength um, but when i kind of poked through it real quick that's you know they did the gave creatine to one group not the other group and then they did an arm training intervention they saw you know creatine was uh, a little bit more beneficial but yeah, it'd be interesting to <clears throat> read the full study and see maybe there is some type of specific effects or maybe it just has something to do with the, I don't know, I'm just hypothesizing here, like the total amount of muscle, right? Because your legs have a much greater muscle mass than the arms, but mm -hmm. I'm sure they used a high enough dose to kind of saturate everything. So it's unlikely that that's the effect, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Uh, let's see, here's just a tidbit. Um the abstract talks about how there's been earlier work that, uh, let's see, creatine supplementation associated with resistance training could produce greater muscle strength uh, in the upper compared to the lower body, but really nothing's looked at muscle mass. So they looked at lean, soft tissue of the upper limbs, the lower limbs, and the trunk uh, with DEXA, 
dual x-ray mm. absorptiometry, of course. Um, before and after the intervention, it says results, both groups showed significant improvements in upper, lower, and trunk uh, mass, and the creatine group achieved greater increases in these outcomes compared to placebo. It says for the creatine group, improve, improvements in upper limb mass, essentially, were, were 7.1%. Uh, and those were higher than in the lower body, which was about 3% enhancement. Uh, and in the trunk, where there was about a 2% enhancement. So conclusion, our results suggest that creatine supplementation can positively augment muscle hypertrophy in resistance-trained young men, particularly in the upper limbs. So again, I, I didn't read through the, all of the methodology there, just kind of cutting to the chase. But yeah, it looks like 7% gains in the upper body versus maybe 3 in the hmm. lower body, as far <clears throat> as I can tell. Uh, so it's curious it is and like i said yeah. there, it's not entirely shocking uh because of again so, sort of some of the history of clinical nutrition or some of what i've seen in the lab in other ways so um it, it's cool stuff though it's neat to look at regional stuff like that yeah maybe it's just as simple as you're just getting more relative <clears throat> overload on the arms as you are compared to lower body because you're using it to walk around and ambulate and all that kind of stuff too possibly right yep Okay, uh, in other cool. news, uh, two things came around this week that sort of played off of each other. So it, sort of teaching moment here, I think, perhaps. But um, we were talking about evidence-based practice in the classroom. And then someone on Twitter recently uh, was suggesting that uh, Iron Radio used to reference studies and evidence and science and, and now were opinion-based. And I, that's curious to me. I, you know, Like I said, it's always hard to tell if maybe – somebody just disagreed with what was said or maybe with some of the coaching advice and some of that is opinion based right if we're going to talk about Phil's opinion on you know how he sets up programs there is sort of an art to coaching um, but having said that I mean we do usually reference things uh, like I said I don't know that Brad Schoenfeld uh, where that appeared uh, it was on ResearchGate I know which is where we got the link um, hmm but in any case, we do try to provide names, dates, journals. Um, I'm not sure, you know, when it comes to evidence and having actual discussions about something. Uh, Mike, you pointed out a few weeks ago, we can't just page turn through a manuscript and, you know, PubMed yeah. study after study. Uh, there's really, then there's very little creativity or chance to discuss things. Uh, but I, when we speculate, we say we're speculating. Um, or if it's something based on our personal history or something we've observed, we know that's an N of one, but hey, you know, that that's an opinion. And we usually try to point that out to the best of our ability. Now, if you're interested, listeners, about what is evidence-based, because most people do like Iron Radio because in the fitness world, so much is just completely subjective opinion. Um, the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University has some great materials for what is evidence. And if you've had any training in this at all, uh, for example, in um, different research courses, we'll share this, this evidence hierarchy, right? So think it's like a pyramid. In fact, you can actually Google CEBM, evidence hierarchy or evidence pyramid, uh, and you can pull up some of these, these graphics. The CEBM, again, Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. Uh, there's a Cochrane approach to this. There's different groups that try to seek this you know um sense about science there's really quite a few but the general hierarchy is this 
at the lowest rung or very near the lowest rung um, when it comes to our field is expert opinion. Uh, some hierarchies have animal studies even below that or on par with that. But expert opinion is oftentimes what coaches will do. You know, I've seen this. This is, I know I'm an N of one, but this is my opinion. I've seen this clinically many times. And there can be some value in that. Certainly an expert opinion is better than an uninformed opinion. Um, but it is, after all, an opinion. As you go up the rigor ladder, there, there's case reports and case studies, that sort of thing. Um, there's cohort studies. Eventually, you get into sort of the randomized, double-blind control clinical trials, right? And those are very strong because they're causal. Instead of just being observational, for example, and looking for relationships that aren't causal, uh, if you use a placebo group and an intervention group, like, for example, placebo versus creatine, like we were just talking about, then if you treat the two groups as identically as you can and you, can see, and you see differences in lean mass in this, um, uh, you know, muscle mass, like we did in this recent paper we just mentioned, then it must be the effect of the creatine because it's the only thing, more or less, different between the intervention and the placebo in the control group. So it's causal. So th that's very near the top. Oftentimes, and I think this is a, a gray area sometimes, but even beyond the randomized clinical trial, there's a meta-analysis, right? So this is actually, we talked about this, I think, just last week or the week before. It's a quantitative look. Uh, it's a study of other studies. So they'll actually try to control what kind of studies they choose for different, in, in different aspects, like in who, at what dose, for what duration, whatever it might be, their criteria. And then they try to say, what do we know across the board? So again, it's a study of other studies. The reason I think that's a little gray is because I've seen some clinical uh, clinicians and even clinical professors, they go right to that. Like they'll have their students look at review papers or meta-analyses, but oftentimes their students have never actually collected data or analyzed it themselves. And to me, that does take away from your understanding, right? I, I know you don't have to actually go collect the data, but Mike, you and I both know when you're in the oh, lab, yeah. it's very non-glamorous. You're getting those data points and, you know, you, you get a feel for what's a normal physiological range, what kind of lifestyle factors impact it, wh what are the limitations of the equipment. There's so many things that you get a feel for. And oftentimes the better journals, they will only want you to write a review paper if in fact you have background published, you know, publishing or presenting in that specific area, actually collecting the data. So I do think it's sometimes dangerous starting at the top. I know that that's clinicians have to do that. But again, if their students have never collected a data point in their life, I, I do sometimes get this vibe like they're standing on the shoulders of giants and then, you know, they're, um, they're talking a good game, but they've never done it themselves. Now we might have some yeah. clinicians that are, I'm pissing off right now, I'm not saying that meta-analyses and, and large systematic reviews are poor. They're not. They're very important. But uh, anyway, so randomized clinical trials and those meta-analyses would be the top of an evidence hierarchy. So uh, we try to bring that up. Uh, we brought up a meta -ana large meta-analysis on coffee recently. So uh, we are trying to keep it as evidence-based. But I don't know. Mike, what do you think about this stuff? Yeah, and I... I have a little bit of an argument sometimes with <clears throat> meta-analyses being at the top, and it's it's more dependent on how the meta-analysis is actually done, right? We've seen some that are done very well, 
very well, quote unquote, controlled, my little air quotes. Um, and others where it looked like their inclusion criteria and what they accepted were just so wide you could drive two buses through them and it's like, okay, great. So we just took a bunch of studies, we, we threw them in a thing and here's what came out, you know. So I think readers should be cautious when they look at even meta-analyses and even, you know, randomized controlled trials, right? The one I use for my students as an example is what you're very familiar with would be like a, a fish oil intervention. Right. It, it drives me kind of bananas that they'll take a group of people and they'll be like, OK, we're going to do the randomized controlled trial. OK, split these people in half. You get fish oil. You don't. We'll measure some outcome. Ooh, fish oil has no effect. You know, well, what dose did you use? Right. It'd be more interesting to say, OK, let's test everyone and see where their baseline is. And now let's divide them into a low group and a high group and try to make everything else equal. Maybe we'll do another arm or the same study or different study where we'll try to supplement them up to uh, a specific dose and then we'll look at effects, right? So again, just because I think sometimes people look and go, oh, it's a randomized controlled trial. It's It's got to be like the highest data and they kind of wheel that out without really reading the study and, and looking at what's going on. Right, yep. I actually had a, a good discussion with a friend of mine here in town. He's an endocrinologist. And I'd say, look at all these papers. I think we were talking about testosterone replacement. Uh, and he said, you know, I appreciate this. And, you know, that's great. But I have to combine that, right? So evidence-based practice combines that with patient values. Yeah. Uh, uh, at least some information coming from clinical experience. Because, Mike, you and I can both assure everyone that if we head into different like the realm of pathophysiology, we're, we're as educated in many ways as a lot of physicians, but they have some of that clinical experience in their specialty that we don't, right? So yeah. I'm always deferring like, so what have you seen in your 30 years and that sort? And it does help inform. Like I've had some older physicians, they're like, Lonnie, yes, this beats every sign and symptom. You're absolutely right. But trust me, I've seen this for 40 years. It's really this masquerading as that. Wait three days and you'll see. And he, damn it, he was right, right? So <laughs> so that's the – and so I have respect and I always go head into those conversations. I mean, we do have a lot of listeners. I think you do want to get tossed a bone, you know, when you're at the family doctor or your specialist oh, yeah. or whatever, that you understand these things, you know, on a maybe a, a little bit higher level than some people do because of your interest in – in you know exercise physiology or strength training or whatever it is or nutrition and you know that kind of thing but at the same time yeah you got to respect some of that and even patient values like if you go to the center for evidence-based medicine yeah there's a lot of research involved but you've got to combine that with what your patient values you know and that sort of thing there's a lot that goes into this it can't just be I mean, there's like 1,500 new papers a day, I think, on PubMed, and, and now that's sort of across the board, and that, that was the last data that I saw, again, from Oxford, but um, yeah, you do have to sort of combine that, and let's face it, it, we have to have something to talk about, so it's fun to speculate, so long as you say this is speculation. Otherwise, in podcasting, what would we really do? We'd just be reading yeah. papers, you know? Uh, I get two listeners. <laughs> <laughs> right, to both our listeners. <laughs> yeah, it'd be both us. Uh. <laughs> My wife wouldn't even listen then. Yeah, uh, it's funny. But yeah, and that's, I think at some level you could argue that almost all of what we do in some form, depending on how far you go down and how extreme you want to get, is speculative, right? Because we all know that, okay, they 
looked at this population of age, you know, guys 30 to 40. Oh, well, Joe Bob comes in and he's 41. Technically, he wasn't really in that study, quote unquote, but that's pretty damn close to where, you know, he's actually at, right? Just using age as a as a rough marker. So on one hand, it when you have to spend your life actually applying these things, right? So if you're a trainer, you're a coach, you know, you're working with people, you're doing nutrition stuff, you're a physician, whatever, you're literally working in that gray area every day, right? Where, like you said, you're trying to make the best decision you can. You're trying to look at all the available evidence that there is, but you're also going to add in, you know, some of your experience. You're also going to add in what you think, you know, the person can do from a compliance standpoint, right? Especially if you're working as a coach. Um, I think that's where it gets kind of really messy. Um, but also that's where it's very interesting, right? You may see things that, you know, research just hasn't even looked at yet. So if there's no research on it, the answer is, well, we don't know. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. You know, we can look at some principles of physiology. We can try to hypothesize what we think may happen, but you're kind of working in that gray area all the time. Just so I kind of like uh, Louise Burke's language where she says evidence um, led, right? So you're you're trying to use evidence, but you're not going to be held 100% completely bound to what the evidence said. Because a lot of times the evidence is going to be, as we know, incomplete, right? Science is always trying to, to stay ahead, and there's things that scientists know that coaches don't know, so it definitely goes both ways. Um, but science is a very slow kind of plodding forward progress. And I don't think it's ever going to be as fast as what we would want it to be. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. Right. In some ways, to use a metaphor, it's sort of like Spock and Kirk. You know, Kirk yeah. has to make decisions. <laughs> Spock saves his ass a lot of times. But yeah. sometimes Kirk makes some gut decision or, uh, let's face it, like when you and I, if we study free living people, like you said, Biology is so messy. There are so many confounding variables. Everything has to be done. Like research doesn't prove anything. You know, you're yeah. just supporting or refuting a very narrow hypothesis. Like you said, it inches forward. And that's when people in the media, they over extrapolate. So, oh, you know, definitely. new research says creatine is good. Well, I don't have a piece of equipment that measures good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And and again, yeah, and I, I can understand the, the um, sensitivity that, Everybody is worried about fake news and this and that. And I, I just went to a class the other day. Uh, uh, one of the senior writing profs on campus was uh, she, she has students actually looking at trying to get this idea that there are objective truths. You know, everything isn't subjective. There are some things you can sort of validate in different ways. And you really should try to look at things from both sides. Um, and th again, that's where we have to be careful. Because, like, uh, uh, recently we talked about a beta-alanine study where there was no effect. Okay, you, instead of saying, well, I believe that should have an effect, that's fake news. Well, <laughs> no. Like, I would like to believe that all coffee studies show improvements in health. And I think I've been fortunate that most of them do. But, again, because of genetic differences, coffee may not yeah. be for everybody. Or, like, and that's the same thing with creatine. So genetics and lifestyle and so many different things. Free-living people are a bear 
uh, to deal with. And I try to break them down when I do a deep dive and drill down, like you were saying, with like a different doses or whatever it might be. Like I'll do a tertial split in a data set and I'll take the highest versus the lowest. Uh, there's different ways to kind of tease this apart. I'm not going to launch into a discussion of type one and type two error in statistics, but there are so <laughs> many things where research doesn't prove anything and you have to be cautious. And like you said, I, I, I like that too. Uh, re, uh, evidence led decision making. Yeah. And in our field, if you're like, oh, Lowry, Nelson, please, can, you know, what about the muscle mass? Get back to the training. <laughs> but that's exactly what we're talking about, right? It's hard. Uh, because of differences you sometimes you do need that wisdom knowledge and wisdom are sort of different things right and so sometimes uh checking in with phil like what do you see in the trenches yeah. that's that reciprocal model where the clinician isn't the highest person or the coach uh, and the scientist isn't necessarily they're feeding off of each other like this is what i found in the lab what do you see and, the, and they, then the coach or the clinician might say this worked and that didn't try this i suggest you do this in your next study and you know, and then it, it, eventually you do inch forward. So, um, yeah, it, it, it can be messy. So uh, yeah, again, hopefully that's at least some some information for everybody about what evidence really is. And I, again, I, I encourage you to go Google that. It's not hard. You know, again, CEBM evidence pyramid or evidence uh, hierarchy, and you'll see a variety of different uh, pyramids or ladders or hierarchies where you can see this range from like i said something this as you know uh, softer as a as an expert opinion all the way up to like the rcts and the the meta-analyses and stuff yeah and that's something that i've <clears throat> struggled a lot with because i do some stuff that i know there's very little to no evidence on it it's not a lot of evidence to show that it doesn't work either so you're kind of left with eh, i try to equate stuff as best i can and you know, even doing the certification that I created, I wanted to have as much evidence in there as I can. But I also understand from a user perspective, I can't just show them, you know, two hours of graphs and expect anyone to pay attention either. You know, it's something that they're <clears throat> doing as a voluntary type thing in order to get better. So it's like, what is the median line of, yeah, I'm probably giving you my expert opinion, but here's what it's based on. Here's a study. <clears throat> here's roughly what was included in the study. I have a little uh, mouse that flies in if it's a mouse study. So I try to stick up a little mouse in the corner and say, you know, we don't have any human studies on this. Here's a mechanistic study. It was done on rodents, but here's what they found because a lot of times you can't do very invasive biopsies or cut out brain tissue in humans and, you know, different types of things. So, you know, and at the end say, <clears throat> here's what we know currently. Here's where I think you should, you know, probably have clients do this, 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 or this, you know, and that's, that's going to change over time, and, and that's okay. Yeah, you and know? you know, so. the tough thing in fitness is that people, if something works for you, listener, then you tend to embrace that, right? Yeah. Uh, Sagan always says we tend not to be especially critical when we're presented with evidence that seems to confirm our prejudices, right? So if you hear yep. something you like to hear, hey, you know, that must be right. If you hear something you don't like, the Ooh. gut reaction is that's wrong. <laughs> well, again, maybe for you, Right. But that's why I like about science has humility, good science built into it. Like these are some like when you write a conclusion on something, you're like being fair. These are some reasons that I might have seen the results I did that were not my intervention. You know, yeah. or here's a direction for a future study or here's why I might have missed something, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, everybody's going to have opinions. I mean, scientists are people, coaches are people and we have certain opinions. Um, so. 
you know, uh, always stay skeptical, right? You don't want to be so skeptical you're an absolute ass, you know, curmudgeon. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't be so open-minded because you, you get that sort of sometimes hippy-dippy thing in fitness and wellness too that you're so open. You can't be so open-minded your brain falls out, you know. Yeah. So there's got to be some level of healthy skepticism. And, um, honestly, I think because we want to believe certain things in fitness and we kind of embrace a certain um, – coach's approach or nutritionist's approach, uh, we start defending it instead of trying to being and being able, being strong enough to change conclusions with new evidence, you know, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, if, if yeah. someone started flooding me with papers about how protein really does harm your kidneys or coffee will kill you today, hey, I'll address it. I'll add it to what I know now and I'll try to, you know, form an opinion. Um, so. Yeah. My <clears throat> last thought on that too is that that's a long process. I mean, I remember <clears throat> getting some of the early work on fasting years ago and I went into it, you know, I've been eating, you know, you know, three, you know, five, six meals a day, every couple hours, all the stuff I've read and like fasting, that's insane. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life. And, you know, luckily some people were nice enough to keep, you know, sending me more and more data on it. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, maybe this isn't as bad. I'm like, Oh, so where is the muscle protein breakdown data from fasting? Oh, it's, not as prevalent as I thought. Oh crap! You know. <laughs> yeah, there are some so, surprising examples like that. I going mean, back and yeah. But you know, if I'm honest, it took me about a year and a half to kind of sort of change my opinion on it. It wasn't like it happened overnight either. Yeah, you know? it's hard. So I think it, it's it's a it's a process for people. So thinking someone's going to change their opinion based because you send them two PubMed papers, yeah, it's an unrealistic expectation on your part too. Right. I, I, it comes down to, would you rather know the truth, no matter how hard it is to eventually come around to it, right, as new things emerge, or are you going to just keep clinging to something, you know, that because it's sort of a palliative or it's a yeah. it's satisfying, you know, and self-reinforcing? And, and, again, that class that I went to recently, uh, just sitting with the students listening to some of this stuff, because that's what people do. They tend to run in self-reinforcing circles, you know, yep. because politics are so polarizing now, and I'm not a fan of politicians across the board, to be honest. I'm sort of Jedi in that way, <laughs> like distrustful of, of politicians. Yeah. But, yeah, you, you, if you like MSNBC, you keep listening to that and reinforcing it. If you, if you like Fox, you're going to keep kind of doing that. And that's what we try not to do, right, with evidence base. You, you cast it as broad as you can, and you can't be aware of everything. But, yeah, and then hopefully people get bigger or leaner or stronger, Um with some of this behind it, right? With so, some type of evidence. So, yeah. Because at the end of the day, the <clears throat> client or whoever's coming in, they're paying for a result. You know, it's like if I had the option of, okay, here's 12 PubMed studies for this person, or here's something that I quote unquote know that works. Eh, if I'm a practitioner, I'm probably going to go more with what I believe is going to get them the result, right? And that's, an extreme example, it doesn't have to be an either or, it's actually an and statement. But I've rarely ever had a, a client ask for, oh, well, what was the research on why we did deadlifts today? Oh, I got stronger in my deadlifts. This is awesome. <laughs> right, right. Just tell me how, not necessarily right. why. Although it's right. good to be, like Phil always says, you know, if he's worth his salt as a coach, he should be able to at least explain on some level why. Definitely. Yeah. No, good stuff. Cool. Okay, well, with, again, with Phil away, this is what happens. <laughs> Mike yeah, and I get the old scientist curmudgeon talk. That's right, <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, everyone, after the break, we're going to check in with Dr. Cordero, and she's um, sort of an expert communicator in that way. I mean, Mike and I are teachers and scientists, um, but uh, it's interesting to have conversations with people in the humanities like that about, you know, 
getting the word out and reaching people and and that's what we're going to do we're going to talk about different kinds of ways to publish yourself in media uh, and that sort of thing so you can help uh, get sort of evidence-based uh, quality stuff out there Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. I can't stop feeling some of us don't understand how lucky we are to be living in this land. Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or... Click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, 
But if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everybody, we are back. Uh, it's just Lonnie, and I'm here with Dr. Danielle Cordero again, and we're going to sort of keep picking her brain about different ways to be a content provider, if you will, in the fitness world. Uh, last time we talked about mostly the written words, storytelling, things like that. So obviously there's lots of things going on in the web 2.0 world, videos and audio and all these different things. Um, but I'm not the expert in that. I mean, it's something that I use, but it's not something that I'm an academic, you know, regarding that stuff. So uh, let's start with actually that question. So can you talk a little bit about multiple mediums that are available to people who might want to express themselves or be a content provider or whatever. Okay, cool. So, Hey, this is Danielle. Um, so, you know, I mean, everybody, this is not news to anyone. The mediums are, you know, blogging, podcasting, uh, writing for print, writing online. Um, but really, I mean, the first thing you have to do before considering, well, which one of these do I want to get into is what are your, what are your goals? You know, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to promote a product or a business? Are you somehow the product in some way? You know, some people are like, I'm the talent and that's the, that's the thing that's interesting about what I'm doing. Um, what's the goal? Are you trying to get noticed by someone that's going to maybe hire you later on? Um, do you want to be your own media machine? Do you want to monetize the mediums? Those are all different goals. They, some, they might be related. Um, you might have all of those goals. But I think it's really important before you do anything to sit down and um, have a very full picture of what your own goals are. Um, so, for example, Lonnie and I were having dinner the other night. We were eating tacos and, and talking about life. And I, I said, you know, um, I, okay, you know, after Christmas, I'm really going to get back in there and go to the gym. And, I, and then we were joking because... You know, I said, you know, I, I don't know that I know the reason why I'm going to the gym. And that's one of the reasons why it always kind of, you know, I go for a little while and then I stop going. So, you know, there's lots of reasons why you can go to the gym. You know, you could want to improve, you know, anxiety and depression. You might, um, you know, want to build your beef castle. You might want <laughs> to, um, you know, you might want to improve your cardiovascular health. Or you might want to do all three of those things. But if you don't know why you're there or you kind of forget why you're going, like while you're going, you're like, oh, this just sucks. And like, it's, it doesn't feel worth it. And you can't sort of check in with your goals, then, you know, you're not going to be successful at the gym and you're not going to be successful with an audience. If you take that tack um, with any of the mediums that we've sort of talked about. You know, that's, that's actually very reminiscent of our recent conversation about product development and patenting products and being able to use goal setting and what you learn in the gym and applying it to something. In this case, obviously, instead of a physical product, you're you're taking some of your goal setting ideas, right? Forming a very strong, specific goal 
and being able to pursue it, right? What's what's your program, if you will, toward reaching that goal? Uh, I can tell you, for example, when, when I run Facebook ads, and we don't really advertise much on Iron Radio, I think a lot of people know, but when we do, it's interesting, these social media ads, they'll say, what's your, what is your goal? Do you want brand recognition? You know, do you want click through? Are you, are, are you trying to sell a specific product? Do you need to be able to click it? And, you know, so they have different kind of ad campaigns. I know some of our listeners are familiar with that, but so if you're a coach, if you're a personal trainer, whatever it might be, uh, I agree, man, some of those things, those are goals that you have to have in mind first. Uh, is it just self-gratifying? You know, is it brand awareness, whatever it might be? Right. And so, you know, there's, there's definitely like, uh, the, the gym, gym, uh, you know, uh, content production, uh, links are, are pretty, pretty strong metaphorically because, you know, they're both sort of like long haul, uh, commitments, right? So, you know, some of the realities that you have to think about the realities, just like you would, if you were embarking on like a new diet or exercise routine, you need to think about reality, right? So what are some of the realities of working in these different mediums? Um, so the first thing that you need to do is think about, you know, what are the affordances of the mediums and what does it allow you to do? Um, and like, you know, what does it require of you on the other, on the other side? So committing to a medium is kind of like committing to a pet. Um, you got a dog, you might actually hear Lonnie's dog in the background, uh, panting a little bit, which is, <laughs> she's adorable. Um, but you know, you get a dog and it has to go out several times a day. It needs affection. Um, and it gives you in return for that, it gives you big sloppy kisses. So you have to actually like, you have to actually want the kisses. So you have to want the good things that it's going to give you, but you also have to be okay with the walks and even maybe want those too. Right. So, um, so you have to be realistic about how things sort of fit into your life. A parrot, for example, is a much different thing. It's a, it's a wild animal. And it never needs, but it never needs a walk ever. Doesn't need to go outside. In fact, it might not be a good thing to bring your parrot outside. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, but it does prefer to be like on your shoulder 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if it were able to, right? So you have to be okay with and want that for your life. So committing to a medium is kind of like that. Um, you have to understand what it gives you, what it allows you to do and what it requires. I think listeners know that Iron Radio, we're sort of the parrot, right? Is that we sort of rely quite a bit on our experience and our awareness of, you know, whether it's the news or a particular exercise physiology or nutrition topic. There's not a huge amount of homework. Sometimes behind the scenes, if we do an episode that's going to require a lot of homework, I always make a note sort of to self that this one's going to require some homework, like if we're going to do some kind of product review or, you know, something like that, you know, what's the cost, what, what are its capabilities, whatever it might be. But yeah, and I think that's why we didn't pod fade, right? Because it's such a thing, we, like we were talking yeah. about is pod, pod fade, I would think most podcasts probably last between three and six episodes, and then they're gone. And I think it's because they put so much time, it's like the the needy puppy. You know, there's so much that goes into it. The production values are fantastic. They got YouTube, whatever else. But if they're really out doing their job, and in our case, like as a coach or a nutritionist or whatever professor, then you don't have time for something that's super needy. And, you know, here nine and a half years later or something like that, Iron Radio is still 
still going because it's mostly the parrot, right? It requires some attention and, and you like what you get out of it, but it, it's not so demanding um, that you run out of steam, right? That you just, you lose the time resource and it, and it pod fades. Right. And it's the other, the other, I love extended metaphors. So I'm just going to keep going with the parrot. The parrot's on you 24 seven, right? You, you have to enjoy the process of, of being with the medium. So, you know, Lonnie talks about how, you know, like he doesn't do a whole bunch of prep and write a bunch of scripts and like, you know, uh, think through production and, and post-production and things like that. He enjoys being with the medium as he set it up. And so that's kind of something you need to think about too. You have to, you have to sort of bend it. You have to decide how you're going to bend it so that it like, so that you enjoy the process of being with your pet. If that makes sense. It's a good metaphor, I think. Right. So, um, talking about some of the specifics, like getting into the specifics, like writing, we talked about a little bit, um, print versus online. Um, if you're writing for print, like if your goal is to write for, um, publication for like, you know, peer reviewed journals, right. That's kind of a a process where you're not going to be, you're not going to have to be producing content every week. So that can be a little bit of a relief for someone who needs to kind of sit on their ideas for a longer amount of time, needs to do a lot more research before they feel comfortable saying something. Um, and, and that can, doesn't necessarily have to be peer reviewed journals. It could be writing for magazines. You know, you have, a, you basically, you choose in some way, you know, um, at least when you first get started and you're not getting assignments, uh, how long you want to spend on something, which is, which is really helpful, I think, in, for some people. Um, now, if you have a blog, it's a totally different story you have to be producing content for that blog on a regular basis. Um, I don't, I can't think of really anyone who has a single author blog where they are creating content every single day for the blog. I'm sure they're out there, but that's very, very difficult. Even though blogs, blog posts, average blog posts um, that people actually want to read are between 250 and 300 words, you know, um, that's still you have to come up with something. And if you're interested in doing what Lonnie is doing on this podcast, which is creating things that are evidence-based, it's really hard to evaluate evidence in like, you know, a couple hours by yourself, you know, news organizations that do that have a team of people who are working on making sure that, you know, whatever it is that they're saying is true, hopefully in most cases. Right. But you're just one, if you're just one person, it's really, really hard to do. So, but if you are going to go the blogging route and, you know, decide I'm going to do it once a week or I'm going to do it twice a week, it's going to be Tuesday and, and Friday or something, whatever it works out for you. And then you have to have some time to plan and gather data, gather information, think about how you want to, um, you know, write, write a first draft for the love of God. Don't be one of those people that puts their first draft on online, right? Um, writing just requires that you write multiple drafts. It's just how it is. Um, so there, that's writing. And then, you know, there's things like podcasting, which I'm sure you've talked about a lot on this um, program. It's the same kind of deal has to come out once. If you say it's going to be once a week, it has to be once a week. It has to be on the same day. And, you know, you have to think about the affordances. So for example, you know, how are people getting, um, blogs? How are you, how do, how do you read blogs? Probably the answer is on your phone. So that's one of the reasons why it makes sense for a blog post to be 250 words, 300 words. That's actually quite a lot of text. Which I might add, if you're not familiar with writing, that's about a paragraph. I mean, that is not a large amount of material. One to two 
ish paragraphs. Yeah, it's two. It's about one page double spaced, right? So if you're thinking about Microsoft Word or something like that, um, so so when you're looking at a tiny tiny screen, that's actually quite a lot of text, right? Um, but you know, for a peer reviewed journal article, that's like you know one fifteenth of what you need to be writing. So that you need to be thinking about that also. So you know, same thing kind of goes for for podcasting you got to think about how are people consuming the medium? When do you listen to podcasts? I know I live alone. So I basically live on, the, I live on the things, you know, I, I, I get home, you know, I'm using it to help me finish a cleaning project around the house. You know, I've got my headphones in, um, or, you know, I'm listening on my Lonnie and I both have a hour long commute to work. So I'm listening on my way to and from work. I need to use my eyeballs to be doing other things and I need to I need to have my hands free but part of my brain is tuned into the things that are happening. So you need to be able to plan for an you know half 15 minutes, half hour, 45 minutes, an hour worth of content. That is a a lot of content. So you have to be able to plan for what's going to what's going to engage people only through their ears. The affordance of that medium so if you listen to, if you really want to get out there and listen to some interesting podcasts, listen to Radiolab. Radiolab uses tons of music, lots of production. You know, maybe you want to go in that direction or maybe you want to do something that's more stripped down and that's more of a talk show kind of format like Lonnie's. Those are decisions you have to make. You can't just like every week have a different sort of thing going on because you're going to confuse your audience. Um, I'll talk about one more um, uh, and then we might want to take a little bit of a break, but um, video. Okay, video probably is like is one of the most powerful mediums for people in your field, because uh, I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are interested in like techniques at the gym, um, you know, uh, maybe recipes uh, for food that's going to, you know, um, give you a certain result. Um, so that involves like how to how to videos are one of the quickest if you're good at it. It is one of the fastest ways to get a a viewership and to get noticed. If that's your goal is to get noticed, make a really awesome, excellent how-to video. Um, but you have to actually know how to make a good how-to video. And that's what we might talk about next. But, but video is... So think about video. Think about how people are going to consume a how-to video, if that's going to be the way you're going to go with it, right? Think about how you consume those. So like for me, I'll give you an example. It's not related to uh, fitness, right? Uh, I, I needed to know how to um, fix my dryer, right? When I moved into my new house, I didn't know what I was doing. I had to rewire the back of it. So what was the first thing that I did? I didn't go to the instructions that some poor tech writer slaved over, right? I went to, I went directly to YouTube and I went directly to, you know, the, the, the video that had the most thumbs up. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, was closer to the top and then I watched it and, and really good how-to videos are know how to focus in on the things that are going to confuse people or make people like screw up or, and they, and they tell you, you know, don't do this, you know, this is going to be tempting to do, but watch out for that. You know, like you anticipate what the difficult things are. So a lot of people think that that just happens by magic, that you're going to know that by magic. And some of it, you know, you can pick up from observing and we're going to talk about observing in a second, but some of it is you got to test it out on somebody. You have to actually user test your media, which people think that, you know, Lonnie, Lonnie and I were talking earlier where it's like, 
you know, especially with writing, all of these things, because of Web 2.0, we have all these tools to actually make things ourselves. And we think because we have the ability to make them that we'll automatically know how to make them. And that's just not true. There's there's literacy involved in, in the medium. You know, an example of that, if you're going to do a, a demonstration, uh, Mike Nelson has talked about this on the show before, but like, do you film someone, if you're going to try to point out potential pitfalls, let's say in the low bar squat or something, do you film them from the front, from a 45-degree angle? Do you film them from the side? You know, there's a lot of different ways to do that. And I, I think a lot of our listeners are even familiar with different certifications sometimes. They'll have you watch a video and try to pick out what's what's being done right or wrong in this den, deadlift. You know, are they firing their hip hinge at the right time or whatever, What you know, what's going on with that sort of thing. So uh, I like what you're saying about the find the potential need. Like, what's what do people really want out of this right what's the what's the potential pitfall or how to do something correctly and then being able to actually show them and by you know and again it's this is true with cooking type stuff too recipes and that kind of stuff i'll i'll sometimes look at quick youtube videos and you know my wife kelly will too and just uh, almost fast forward type stuff but you know it's it's pointing out like here's how you do this here's how you do that and it's that that demo so yeah i mean it's not something that we obviously do on a podcast but um, yeah, there's a lot of crap on YouTube where clearly people, they're not doing rough drafts first. They're just dumping stuff out there thinking that they're going to get ridiculous number of hits. And there's some cheap tricks sometimes people use to try to get more views, but it's usually very superficial and it's, it's not very helpful. I'll tell you what, I think um, out of nature of time, just out of the, the time issue here, uh, let's wind that down but i want to tell everybody we're going to create a thank you uh i've been addressing this before so thank you everybody for being patient if you're if you're a new supporting member of that sort of thing for the our uh, fall winter funds drive uh i am going to get some thank yous um tangible thank yous out to everybody that they can uh they can enjoy i think one of them for existing listeners is i'm going to put together a little compilation uh just for you of Basically, some of the, the the best tidbits that that Dr. Cordero has to offer, like for example, how do you establish a unique voice or a unique brand in podcasting or video? And again, going to someone who's actually a professor in this stuff, uh, I've got some other specialty topics as well. Um, so look for that. Um, I'll mention it in the future once I I get that produced. Again, I was mentioning last week, semester's winding down. I got a job to do, but as soon as that's done. I can I can sort of get to the editing software and and create some stuff. So for right now, I, I just I just want to say thanks for joining us because you know, this is this is good stuff. If people want to increase the quality of what's out there in fitness, it's super fun. I enjoy it, and especially being an outsider to this world and you know hearing what you guys care about is always really interesting to me. All right, thanks everybody. We'll see you next week. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention, 
uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.